Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by Lincoln Project Senior Advisor and host of LPTV's The Breakdown, Tara Setmayer. Tara, how are you? I'm doing wonderfully, Reed. Thank you. I'm also joined by Lincoln Project Senior Advisor, Stuart Stevens. Stuart, good to have you here. You bet, Reed. Great to be here, man. Today we're going to talk about the investigation into the January 6th insurrection, and we'll probably get to a little QPAC 2021. But before we get to that, America's entering a new political epoch. You know, I think now that we're through Trump's second impeachment, we're now getting into the rhythm of what will likely carry American politics between now and November of 2022, Biden's first midterm election. And so I think it's time for us to sort of redefine what it is the Lincoln Project is doing. And I think one way I'd like to start with that is bringing up something that Steve Schmidt, one of our co-founders, formulated on his Twitter feed back in January about just what the pillars of Trumpism are. I want to talk a little bit about that and get your sense of it. I think we'll talk a lot more about it as we go forward. But here's what Steve said. These are the seven things that make up Trumpism. One is the dear leader, which obviously is Trump. Two is the propagandists, the Fox News, OANN, Breitbart, Epic Times. Three are the financiers, the Steve Schwartzmans of the world, the Richard Ulines of the world, Sheldon Adelson, who recently passed away. The cynical elite and the complicit cowards, that would be folks like Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz in the first. And then, you know, the second would be the Republican senators and members of the House who know better, but just sit quietly. Number five are the fascist thugs. I think a lot of them were on display on January 6th. We've seen the Proud Boys. We've seen any number of folks going back all the way to Charlottesville. Violence is a core piece, I think, of Trumpism or the threat of it. And so I think that's one thing we should talk about. Six are the sheep, the folks who go along because they've decided that this is the movement they want to be a part of. And, you know, it's almost cult-like in their fervor. And then the last piece of these religious leaders like Pastor Paula, the guy from Liberty University, any number of the sort of evangelical movement who, for whatever it is Donald Trump did, have made it possible for him to garner significant support among probably more Southern faith communities because they're just willing to accept anything that he's willing to do. So Tara, is there anything missing from that list or anything that stands out to you? Well, I think that's a great list because it is multifaceted. Donald Trump and Trumpism didn't come from nowhere. And it survives because of all of these pillars continuing to prop it up. I think the financiers don't get enough attention because without the financiers and the propagandists, you don't have everything else. The irresponsibility, just the sheer irresponsibility of the right wing outlets and the people who are funding this is really tough to swallow. Those people should know better. But yet they go ahead and they put their money behind someone like a Donald Trump and they see what he has created for them. And it just feels to me like they saw their own self-interest ahead of what was good for the country. Similar to media outlets like mainstream media who gave Trump a pass in 2016 because it was good for business. Les Moonves, who is the former head of CBS, he said that Trump was great for business, but bad for the country. And that attitude allowed Trump to really <laughs> go through the 2016 campaign covered in a way that was more entertainment than holding him accountable. And we got what we got. So those two things there, I think, are incredibly important because without money and without the platforms to perpetuate the dark forces of authoritarianism, 
that are the foundation of Trumpism, you don't have everything else. Now, every single one of these pillars plays a role for sure. The enablers, the fascist thugs, the sheep, the religious leaders, the religious community being the most hypocritical group in this entire enterprise because they're supposed to be the moral tip of the spear and they've completely abdicated that for political gain. They have a higher power to answer for later on. And I don't want to be anywhere near them when that judgment comes. But um, everybody else, there are ways that we can hold them accountable and should. And Stuart, pillars might not be the right way to describe it. It may be more of a flywheel where each of these things propel one another in their own ways as you go around the circle. If you take out one pillar, do the rest of them collapse or do you have to go after them all at one time? The fundamental essence of this is based on a lie, various lies. And really, we've never been in a moment that we're in, at least not since 1860, in which one of the major parties in the United States doesn't believe that we live in a democracy. And I think the great danger of the next period that we're in is it's going to look sort of like a normal period. But I just think the entire framework of our electoral process has changed when you have one party. It is the official policy of the Republican Party that 2020 was not a legitimate election, which means we don't live in a democracy. Let me just read you a little quote here from a book. All propaganda should be popular and should adapt its intellectual level to the receptive ability of the least intellectual of those whom it is desired to address. The receptive ability of the masses is very limited and their understanding small. On the other hand, they have a great power of forgetting. This being so, all effective propaganda must be confined to very few points, which must be brought out in the form of slogans. That's how we get locker up. That's how we get build a wall. That's how we get drain the swamp. Now, that little bit of wisdom came from Mein Kampf, mm -hmm. and it is depressingly apt to where we are now. I think the greatest danger that we face is speaking truth and it not being dismissed as alarmism. The Lincoln Project posed America Trump in the 2020 election, America won, and now it's America Trumpism. And it's hard to say that Trumpism is losing. And that, I think, is a call to answer. I was talking to some folks earlier today, and I think the one thing I said is if you're going to be a pro-democracy organization, you have to be able to explain what democracy is. And it's more than just elections or the Constitution. You have to make it tangible. I think the same probably goes for Trumpism. So let me, let me walk you guys through something as we start to talk about the Senate hearings around the January 6th insurrection. So let's just talk about what the seven pillars of January 6th would have been, right? So we had the dear leader. We had Donald Trump saying as early as, I think, December 19th, come to Washington, D.C. on January 6th. And then ultimately, we had him encouraging people, inciting people, directing people to march on the Capitol. And then we had the propagandists, Fox News, OANN, Newsmax, all of the attendant blogosphere, Facebook, all of it, some of whom are now being sued for billions of dollars by voting machine companies because they're defamatory and outright false. But they were all at it, right? They had people on television coming on to say that the election had been stolen. Then we had the financiers. What we're learning more and more as we pull this apart, we saw the, the Republican Attorneys General Association was funneling money and doing different tactical things, uh, that a bunch of Trump campaign staff were being paid to do these sorts of things, that you know the Trump organization was taking money to organize these events. And so to Tara's point, without the money, maybe these things don't happen. 
And then you have the cynical elite and the complicit cowards. And so, you know, you had the cynical elite in the case of January 6th would be Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, right, leading the charge in the U.S. Senate to object to the uh, electoral votes being counted. In the House, you had Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, doing this along with Steve Scalise and all of the normal cast of characters, the Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greens, and everybody else. And then you had the complicit cowards like uh, Roy Blunt from Missouri would not say anything about whether or not Trump was you know, defeated, whether or not Joe Biden was legitimately elected. You even had Mitch McConnell, who wouldn't say anything until after the Georgia runoff elections on January 5th for fear of upsetting Trump and Republicans. You had the fascist thugs, the actual people who charged up the Capitol, uh, who, who you know, killed a Capitol police officer, injured dozens more, and you know, sacked the building. It sounds like maybe they had some help in this. And then you had the sheep, the folks who maybe didn't come to Washington, D.C., maybe didn't march on the Capitol, but in their own way, whether or not it was tuning in to the propaganda networks, whether or not it was propagating these things on Facebook, spun this up into a place where it jumped from the media landscape or the social media landscape, what we call the air gap, into the real world. And then lastly, the religious leaders, which brought sort of a fervor of, you know, God demands that Donald Trump be president, that God will make sure that Donald Trump is president. And so it just sort of all gets that flywheel spinning. And so now we have here, you know, the the Congress is trying to figure out what exactly happened. They have former Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund, the House Sergeant at Arms, Paul Irving, Senate Sergeant Michael Stinger, and D.C. Police Chief uh, Robert Conti. Unfortunately, the headline wasn't about what these law enforcement officers knew or saw, but the conspiracy-laden comments of Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin. Let's actually hear some of those comments. Many of the marchers were families with small children. Many were elderly, overweight, or just plain tired or frail. Traits not typically attributed to the riot-prone. Many wore pro-police shirts or carried pro-police black and blue flags. Although the crowd represented a broad cross-section of Americans, mostly working class by their appearance and manner of speech, some people stood out. A very few didn't share the jovial, friendly, earnest demeanor of the great majority. Some obviously didn't fit in. And he describes four different types of people, plainclothes militants, agents provocateurs, fake Trump protesters, and then disciplined, uniformed column of attackers. I think these are the people that uh, probably planned this. So, Tara, Ron Johnson was a successful business guy, decided to run for United States Senate from Wisconsin, and in the last couple of years has become maybe propagandist par excellence for Donald Trump and any number of off-the-wall conspiracy theories. And so from your time on the Hill, one, you know, if there's 535 members between the House and the Senate and various delegates, did you ever experience anybody like a Ron Johnson who was just so totally out to lunch or willing to suspend disbelief for just purely craven political purposes? Not really on the Senate side. On the House side, you know, you have 435 members and you're always going to have a couple of the crazies out there, but nothing quite like this. I, I mean, the upper chamber was always supposed to be the balance to some of the rowdy members of the House, right? And to see this many senators who five years ago, four years ago, pre-Trump, were sane individuals. You would never have expected them to take this turn. To watch them become these people has been, I mean, volumes are going to be written about this. Ron Johnson was the chairman of the Senate Homeland Security Committee. And he just, you know, the level of access that he got to intelligence information, the security clearance, 
what he was briefed on during that time. And yet, this is the nonsense that comes out of his mouth. He has become a full-on Russian propagandist, a conspiracy theorist, sitting there and actually trying to convince the American people that these were just regular old folks who went up to the Capitol and they're just like me and you exercising their First Amendment rights. You know, these really weren't Trump people. These were BLM. This was Antifa. I mean, what a bunch of bullshit. We saw it with our own eyes. These people who are being arrested left and right by the dozens by the FBI are admitting that they were there because Donald Trump told them to come there. The Oath Keepers, these white supremacist, right-wing domestic extremist groups were there in tactical gear. They bragged about it on social media, on their own parlor boards. Like It was unequivocally a Donald Trump crowd. This was planned and financed by Trumpists. It's just the most infuriating thing, which is why I think that needs to be a 9-11 style commission to fully explore this and get the truth out. But yeah, Ron Johnson is very frustrating. He's up there with some of those others, the Lindsey Grahams and the Cruises and the Rubios and others who've completely sold their souls for political gain to the dark side of Trumpism. Right. And Johnson is up for reelection in Wisconsin next year. And I can promise you that uh, when he looks out on Lake Michigan, he will see the SS Lincoln coming for him sooner than later. But, you know, as a segue, Stu, I want to feed off something that Tara said about the, the 9-11 style commission. So Nancy Pelosi sent a plan over to the U.S. Senate. McConnell said he'd have nothing to do with it because it was dominated by a seven to four Democratic majority who made up the decision about how it would be conducted. And then he said that he didn't want to do a 9-11 style commission that only dealt with the January 6th insurrection, but had a larger scope of broader political violence uh, in the United States. Rob, let's play the McConnell clip. If this new commission is to go beyond a targeted after action analysis of the security failures here at the Capitol complex, if Congress is going to attempt some broader analysis of toxic political violence across the country, then in that case, we cannot have artificial cherry picking of which terrible behavior does and which terrible behavior does not deserve scrutiny. Stu, I'm going to give you three guesses as to what he's talking about when he talks about other (laughs) toxic political violence in the United States. It seems to me that for a gentleman of McConnell's age, and I assume, you know, middling health, that his ability to tie himself into knots to somehow run headlong into Donald Trump on one day and try and avoid Trumpism and the ugliness of the right on another is truly amazing. But clearly he's talking about, you know, what Tara mentioned, right? Black Lives Matter, the aftermath of George Floyd, which, you know, I think is, as we saw even in Portland, you know, there was violence. There's no question. There should not be violence. There should not be looting. But certainly, you know, we saw Portland replayed every night, right, which tended to be a very small group of people in a very small area. You know, you wrote a book about this. It was all a lie that a lot of this is predicated on race. It seems to me what McConnell is saying there is if we're going to talk about January 6th in the Capitol, then I want to talk about black people last summer. The equivalent of what McConnell is doing is that the Warren Commission should have looked into murder in general. There are a lot of murders in the United States. Okay, President Kennedy was murdered, but he's only one of many. I mean, we should look into all of these. It's an absurdity, obviously. But, you know, as a Southerner, This has a lot of the feel of what came to be known as the lost cause, that we're going to redefine what the Civil War was. Now, you guys probably didn't grow up reading 
textbooks that talked about the war of northern aggression. Well, some of us did. And this is how it came to be that we have statues of Confederate generals and Confederate soldiers across the South. This didn't happen after the war. It was something that developed in the 20s as part of this revisionist history, the victimhood of the South. This really is, I think, a moment that is being played, like so many in American politics, in the key of race. Why were they there? They were there to stop the counting of electoral votes with the uh, help of uh, U.S. senators like Cruz and Hawley, who were attempting to disenfranchise millions and millions, primarily of African-American voters. And you look at the pictures of that crowd, and they're overwhelmingly these white Americans who are angry that their choice in a democratic process didn't carry the day. And it's a very sad realization. I added up how many clients I had of the 43 who voted not to convict Donald Trump. And it was a big number. And that's not a great feeling. And I knew these guys. At least I thought I knew them. I will never understand it. But it's, I think, a fundamental failure to honor their oath. Lincoln Project did a great ad about that. And it's uh, whether or not we understand it or not, I think we have to accept it. And we have to face it for what it is. And this is why the Republican Party, in my view, I think has become anti-democratic, at least on the national level, in American politics. You're right, Stu. I'm not old enough to have read textbooks with the War of Northern Aggression, but I did attend the University of Texas at Austin in the mid to late 90s. And I can tell you, as late as then, there was a fraternity on campus who held an old South party. And the members of that fraternity delivered the invitations to their dates in Confederate uniform on horseback. And this is like 1994 to 1998, right? So like, it's not that far away. Well, Reed and I are about the same age and I'm from New Jersey. So there were no textbooks about the war of Northern aggression in my public schools in Bergen County, New Jersey, thank God. However, when I came down to George Washington University to go to college from 93 to 98, I really hadn't spent much time in the South, which is, you know, there's different parts, right? Stu, you're from Mississippi, so that's the deep South. But, you know, Virginia, the suburbs of uh, Washington, D.C. and Virginia are Southern compared to New Jersey. And there were some things that were just a bit shocking to me, even back then, going out to fundraisers and out into horse country out here, the beautiful parts of Northern Virginia, where there's a lot of um, horse ranches and there's a lot of money and there's gold a big cup. gold cup. That's what I was getting to. Um, gold cup is a big horse race that, and it's a big social event that happens. It's kind of like our Kentucky Derby sort of, and it's, you know, filled with the Capitol Hill staffers and lobbyists. It's a big Washington thing to do. And uh, I'll never forget being at an after party at gold cup in a very wealthy family's estate who will remain nameless. And sitting there in the living room and looking around at the paintings and portraits on the wall that had different depictions of slaves and plantations. This was, um, oh, I don't know, 1999, 2000. And I thought to myself, oh, my God. Obviously, they had no problem with these things up there on the wall. And I just couldn't believe that this was what's still happening. And that was 20 plus years ago. There are certain aspects of race that this country has really been in denial about for a long time. 
And for someone like me, who's biracial, and I'm a woman of color, and I was in the Republican Party for 27 years, I think I was naive to how prevalent those racial undertones actually were throughout the party. And the last couple of years under the Trump regime, and really starting with the Tea Party, and then coming full force during Trump, the absolute racist unapologetically racist behavior of so many people in the party and what they've tolerated has been incredibly disappointing and part of the reason why I decided to leave the party. So, you know, I was thinking about something. I think we all probably read more books about all this stuff than we should. We should probably spend some more time with Dick Francis horse novels than political tomes like we do. But there was one thing I was thinking about, you know, Stu, as you've talked about growing up in in the Deep South, probably at the height of the Jim Crow era, which is, you know, when, you, when we see all these other countries that we talk about, you know, that you can have elections, but they're not really free, that you can have elections and they're not really fair. Having an election doesn't make it a democracy. It just means that somebody showed up at a polling place and cast a ballot, whether or not it matters. For democracy to really be true, that ballot has to be fair, freely cast, without fear of retribution, with the ability to do it safely and fairly. And I I was thinking about that, that the South, you know, for probably a lot of your childhood and beyond, was not really a democracy in those states. Jim Crow laws and poll taxes and all of that, it did not represent what I think we as Americans would hold up as something that we would export to the rest of the world. It was happening in our own country for decades. And now we see in places like Georgia where they're trying to reimpose that. Obviously, the Supreme Court struck down a big part of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, But now we see that whether or not it's the Georgia legislature, other legislatures will do this, that, you know, when we talk about the new Jim Crow caucus, it is really a thing going on. And what people kind of forget or don't think about is the ramifications of that went beyond African-Americans not being able to vote for their own elected officials. But how are jury pools? They're taken from registered voters. And look, I mean, I'm a great believer and advocate of these civil rights museums that have come up in the South now. There's one in my hometown of Jackson, Mississippi, which is just beautiful. Because it's difficult to realize even now what this era was like. And I've been reading a lot of books because of a a novel I've been working on that's set in the first three months of 1968 about the era. And you just forget. I mean, a lot of people were killed and tortured trying to vote. And What we saw in 2020 was, okay, we weren't able to stop these people from voting in sufficient numbers to carry the day in the election. So we'll disenfranchise them afterwards, which is what Cruz and Hawley were attempting to do. So now you look at these new voting laws, the whole package of them that are sweeping the country, particularly the South, and they're terrifying. I mean, let me just read one other little quote from another one of my favorite books, How Democracies Die. Blatant dictatorships in the form of fascism, communism, or military rule has disappeared across much of the world. Military coups and other violent seizures of power are rare. Most countries hold regular elections. Democracies still die, but by different means. This is an attempt to kill democracy. There's part of a free society, though, that is connected to this, I think, Tara, which is that it's not just about elections and the freedom and fairness of elections, but how a government treats its citizens in that, to Stu's point, it wasn't just that so many people were beaten, that so many people were killed trying to register to vote, trying to cast a ballot. But I think it was a broader thing about how a government or a regime treats its people. And I think that was the thing for me about what we saw with Trump is that 
he was totally okay with the idea that like you could unleash the powers of the state on individuals, even peaceful individuals. And I think that was, I think, probably most concerning and alarming to me was that it wasn't just going to be people of one color or one creed or one demographic. It was going to be whoever it was got in their way. Absolutely. And also to follow up on Stu's point about some of the museums and other memorials to what took place that are coming up. I mean, anyone who visits Montgomery, Alabama, my good friend Stephen Reed is the first black mayor there. He made history last year and I visited during his inauguration and the lynching museum is there, the lynching memorial. And it is one of the most heartbreaking, intense experiences to witness what that terrorism was like for people living in the South. And to see that, I think it should be required field trip for every white American in this country to see that and how real that level of domestic terrorism was for black people in America simply trying to live their lives equally and have equal access to just the basics, the simple things that were guaranteed to everyone else that black Americans were deprived of for so long. And to see what that looked like, it's life changing. And I just don't think a lot of people really understand what that Jim Crow era was like. But to your point, Reed, I am going to do what Stu just did and read a line from a book that I'm currently reading right now by Anne Applebaum. She talks about Twilight of Democracy and the Seductive Lore of Authoritarianism. That's the book. She says, authoritarianism appeals simply to the people who cannot tolerate complexity. There is nothing intrinsically left-wing or right-wing about this instinct at all. It is anti-pluralist. It is suspicious of people with different ideas. It is allergic to fierce debates, whether those who have it ultimately derived from their politics, from Marxism or nationalism, is irrelevant. It is a frame of mind, not a set of ideas. And I think that that applies to what you just talked about, Reed, because this is not about a set of ideas necessarily. It's a frame of mind that Donald Trump has cultivated with millions of people in this country and convinced them, and we see this in the coalition, that they don't come from a specific ideology per se or grounded in any set of principles, but they are against facts. They're against pluralism. They are against what the pillars of our democracy stand for. And they are very authoritarian in the way in which they approach things and using the state to further those ambitions should be incredibly alarming to any average American, because that's exactly what we fought wars to prevent. And yet here we are seeing the seductive lore of authoritarianism taking place right here on American soil. And that's why the Lincoln Project is so important, because our mission is to make sure that that seductive lore of authoritarianism and those dark forces never prevail on American soil. So let me take that, Tara, and talk about what we're going to see in CPAC in Orlando this weekend. And it's going to be on full display. I'm also interested to see how many times the word democracy will actually appear. I bet it'll be pretty rare. And if it is, it'll be in the context of, you know, we must protect our democracy against fraud or whatever BS they're going to come up with. But let's just have a little bit of humor here because we've been pretty heavy. Rob, why don't we play the Kevin McCarthy, Liz Cheney quote talking about CPAC? Trump should be speaking, or former President Trump should be speaking at CPAC this weekend? Yes, he should. Congresswoman Cheney? Uh, that's up to CPAC. I've, I've been clear in my views about uh, President Trump and, and the extent to which following, the extent to which following January 6th, uh, 
I don't I don't believe that he should be playing a role in the future of the party or the country. On that high note, thank you all very much. <laughs> all right. So there might not have been a more Kevin McCarthy moment in Kevin McCarthy's life. The visual of that, <laughs> I encourage people to watch the video. You can hear the tension in the audio, but when you see Kevin McCarthy's face, you see Steve Scalise's body language and Liz Cheney's body language, it was one of the most awkward political moments that you will see in a long time. That whole exchange was a microcosm of the fight going on right now in the Republican Party. And Kevin McCarthy, who you know well, Reed, and who, you know, I worked for a member from California, you know, when I worked on the Hill many years ago, and Kevin McCarthy was in the delegation. This is not the same guy. And he went on Fox News a couple days after that, I guess the next day, and was asked, because obviously it was quite, <laughs> it was quite obvious to the world attention. And he actually said that, quote, the idea that a Republican would join with cancel culture is beyond wrong. So Liz Cheney speaking out against Donald Trump's insurrection, his sedition, and his anti-constitutional, anti-democratic behavior, anti-Republican, the way the Republican Party used to be defined. She's part of the problem, and they're calling that cancel culture because she doesn't think that Donald Trump should be speaking at CPAC. Well, and Stu, so I mean, you know, the tagline, as we noted earlier in the week, is uncanceled America for this thing. And of course, the first thing they did when when one of their speakers was found to have made outrageously anti-Semitic remarks was they dropped the guy from the speakers list in a very, very public manner. So, you know, to your point about the slogans, cancel culture is the next one. We get to say whatever we want. And if anybody disagrees with us, you're part of the liberal cancel culture. It's illegitimate. I'm allowed to say whatever I want, but you can't tell me whether or not that's socially acceptable. And I think to me, this is something I said previously, maybe even last year, is that to me, one thing about Donald Trump is not just all of the bad things that come with him. He allowed people who otherwise might have had bad thoughts to now express them without much social retribution. He mainstreamed it. He mainstreamed right. it. There are a whole lot of people who were probably assholes in their own head who are now assholes out loud. Ted Cruz. <laughs> being well, he's always been mind. an He's always been an out loud That's asshole. That's true. <laughs> You know, I, I think one of the secrets of Trump's popularity is that he demands nothing from you. It's easy to be angry. It's easy to hate. And Donald Trump takes that part of us that like when someone cuts you off in traffic and you feel that little spurt of road rage, he says that's your best self, that you're a sucker if you let that person cut you off. And I think it's the toxic nature of Trumpism that it reinforces your worst self. It gives you permission to feel good about being a terrible person. And that's very seductive. I think if we had a bank robber president, probably bank robbing would become more socially acceptable. And it's the same with Trump. The one thing I do want to say, Stu, is, is that Trump asks nothing of you but total and loyalty. complete and blind loyalty. Yep. Yep. I mean, remember, the Republican platform of the 2020 convention was whatever Donald Trump believes is what we're for. Whatever it is it needs to be, it will be at that moment. You know, as much as we have been anti-Trump, if one of us went on television for about three weeks and said, look, we were wrong, Trump really is, was a great president, is the future of the party, that guy would embrace us. He would take us back in in a heartbeat. <laughs> I mean, it would be like, okay, let's, you know, great. You know, nothing matters. In 2016, when I went out and I was saying, you know, attacking Trump, which proved to be just terrifically effective. 
whenever I said anything remotely nice about him, I'm told, I mean, like that wasn't the worst speech I've ever heard. And this is when I was still trying to kind of come to grips with it and not really come to admit what it was. I would get an email from Hope Hicks saying, you know, Mr. Trump saw this. He's glad, you know, you haven't always agreed, but, you know, hope we can work this out. It's just transactional, which as conservatives, we used to accuse liberals of believing that. That's right. Triangulation. That's right. The Bill Clinton term. That's it was all a lie, Stu. I heard I wrote somebody a wrote a book, book about it. It was all a lie because, <laughs> you know, I actually believe this stuff, you know. I mean, Me too. Get it at your favorite bookseller. Um, Tara, just if we're going to have someone listening do one thing for us today, what would that one thing be in your mind? One thing people can do is to continue to be informed because there's so much misinformation out there. And it's difficult to kind of sift through what's real and what isn't. But you know in your gut what's right and what isn't. And sometimes it means you have to go back and read a little history, relearn what a democracy means. Just take that extra step to kind of go back and refuel on why our democracy is so important to protect. Because then once you understand that, then you realize why what we're saying is so important. So that's, I think that's the one thing I would ask people to do is to just make sure that you're staying informed and to go back and remind yourself as to why what we're fighting for is worth it. I think that's absolutely right. And I would add one thing, which is if you hear somebody in your group, in your family, in your friends on Facebook saying something you know to be patently untrue, you don't have to be ugly about it, but you go, come on, you know that's not true. And once in a while, we have to actually stand up and say, you are lying. This is not the case. One of the good things, if, if there are any, of the Trump era is that I think it woke a lot of people up. And a lot of people said, what can I do to get involved? What is happening? This is not an America that I want my kids to grow up in. And we've seen an incredible amount of civic engagement and average citizens saying, no, I'm not going to sit back and not do anything. And I think that that's incredibly important because the more engaged you are, a democracy doesn't work if the citizenry isn't informed and engaged and holds their leaders accountable. And that's what we do. That's what we will continue to do. And encouraging citizens out there and, and voters and folks to say enough is enough and continue to get involved because it doesn't work otherwise. Well, listen, I was going to try and come up with something inspirational and forward leaning, but I think, Tara, you did it for me. So I think we'll leave <laughs> it welcome. there for today. Well, uh, Tara, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back on a regular basis. Stu, thanks for co-piloting with me today. Tara, where can we find you online? And tell us a little bit about the breakdown. Well, the good thing about finding me is that there is only one Tara Setmayer. So uh, if you Google me, it's very easy to find me. I'm on Twitter at Tara Setmayer, on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. And of course, you can always come and hang out with me and the one and only Rick Wilson as we co-host The Breakdown on Lincoln Project TV, which you can find on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. on all of the Lincoln Project platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. So if you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel, please do it. Uh, if you don't follow us yet on social media, please do, because that's the best way to uh, watch our show. Come hang out with us on Tuesdays and Thursdays. All right. Thanks, Tara. And Stu, how about you? I'm not as omnipresent as Tara, thank God. Uh, my name is Stuart <laughs> P. Stevens on Twitter. Uh, S-T-U-A-R-T-P, like Paul Stevens, all one word, at Twitter. All right. Great. Tara, Stuart, thanks again for joining me today.
Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.